Okay, we're looking tonight at Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Let's read the rest of the chapter too because this really is very closely related to verses 5 to 9. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. What we have here, brothers and sisters, in verses 5 to 9 is uh, instruction of the Apostle Paul in the proper government of God's church. This is a subject which today is dismissed as unimportant by many. There are many who say that the Bible does not teach us enough about church government so that we really have any um, uh, teaching that would enable us to understand or or enable us to say that there is one form of church government that God looks for, that God desires in his church. Others would uh, simply uh, practice church government in whatever way seems to be appropriate to them in, in their particular time and circumstances. But this is uh, not true. If we gather together the scriptural data, the New Testament data on the government of the church, I think we find that there is very clear instruction about how God wants his church to be ruled. And the basic element in that government of the church is the office of elder, which Paul is talking about here. The office of elder is a very important office in the New Testament church, and it's very important because God himself has appointed it as the means by which 
his church in the New Testament is to be ruled under Christ, of course. Now, Paul had obviously been in Crete with Titus for a while. We don't know how long. We don't know exactly what years he was there. But he does say in verse 5, I left you in Crete. And so he and Titus had been there together. And then Paul, because of the necessity of other work being done in apparently Macedonia, had left Titus there in Crete and had gone on himself to do other work. And he wrote the epistle of Titus to Titus to uh, advise him about the work that he needed to do. And this work uh, seems to have consisted especially in two things. We find in chapters 2 and 3 that one of the things that was needed there in the church in Crete was instruction in godly living. And when we get to those chapters, we'll look at that instruction, of course. But one of the other things that was lacking, that's what Paul himself says in verse 5, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, was this church government by the elders. The churches had come into existence there in Crete, and those churches may have existed already for some time, we don't really know, but they had not yet been um, subjected to the form of government which was customary for the churches in the New Testament from the very beginning. When Paul went on his first missionary journey in uh, what we know today as Turkey, then Paul went through the various cities in Central Asia Minor and he uh, established churches and then he and Barnabas turned around and went back through those churches that they had established and ordained elders. So from the very beginning of the uh, work that the apostle was doing among the Gentiles, this was the pattern that he followed. Churches were established, and as soon as possible afterwards, elders were appointed for the governance of the church. And now the time has come for the, uh, this work to be done on the island of Crete. Now what we have to recognize, of course, as we're talking about the office of elder, is that Christ is the king of the church. He rules the church. He is the ultimate ruler of the church. But that Christ chooses then to rule his church uh, through servants, through ministers, or through stewards whom he appoints and whom he anoints with his Holy Spirit so that they may uh, rule the church in his name. We can use some of the New Testament uh, uh, metaphors for the church in order to get a, a kind of idea of what this means. We can use, for example, the metaphor of a house, which Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ himself is the cornerstone and that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. That the members of the church are the 
a building that is built on that foundation to become the house of God. Peter also, in chapter 2 of his first letter, speaks of the members of the church as living stones in that house of God. And we might say, to extend the metaphor a little bit further, that the elders are the structural framework of the church. So, not a foundation. The apostles and prophets, along with Christ the cornerstone, form the foundation, but the framework of the building. Or we can use the metaphor of a flock. Christ's people are God's flock. And Christ himself is the good shepherd. This is a metaphor that you find frequently, both in the Old and the New Testaments, including, of course, in Psalm 23. But Christ, as the good shepherd, appoints under shepherds, beginning with the apostles, and extending down through all the years of the New Testament to those whom we call pastors, which is really a word related also to the idea of shepherding and elders. So the, the flock has shepherds under the one good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Paul suggests to us here in this passage another metaphor that we can use in this regard. He says in uh, verse 7, a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. The bishops are, are stewards of God. In other words, again, you have the metaphor of a house, better in this case, of a household, over which a master rules, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that master appoints certain stewards to administer his household under himself. These Elders, then, are stewards in the household of God. So, with that in mind, then, let's look at the details of what Paul says here. Now, what Paul does, of course, in these uh, five verses that we're looking at tonight, is he talks about uh, especially the qualifications for the office. He wants Titus to be appointing elders, but he doesn't want him to just appoint anybody who, who may be willing to take the office. He wants him to examine these men with regard to their spirituality and with regard to their ability and with regard to their understanding of the faith. He wants him to choose the men who are most spiritually qualified for this office. But before we get to that matter of qualifications, there are uh, three or four other uh, points that we want to make. In the first place, we have here in the passage two words for this office of elder. He says in verse 5 that he wants Titus to appoint elders. That's one of the words. And then in verse 7, he uses the word bishop for a bishop must be blameless. And these are the two common words in the New Testament for this office. Elder and bishop, or perhaps better, overseer. The word elder talks really about the the character of the man. 
It's simply a word that means older man. And you find it again, actually, in chapter 2, verse 1, where, or verse 2, rather, uh, as for you speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober. It's the same word that you find in chapter 1, verse 5. So these are older men. And undoubtedly, Paul uh, singles out older men because they should be wiser than young men. They have the greater experience, the greater uh, training, the longer training in the, in the faith of the gospel, and so on. And these men, therefore, can be uh, expected to have a greater wisdom than younger men. So that's the, the idea in the first place, the, the idea of the first term. But the second term, bishop or overseer, is a word that talks more about the authority that these men, that, that Christ gives to these men. He gives to them authority to oversee his church, to watch over or to supervise his flock on his behalf. Those are the two words that we find here. We find those same two words also in Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul is uh, talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus as he's traveling back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And he uses these same two words with regard to them. Uh, verse 17, first of all, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And then in verse 28, as well, in the course of his uh, exhortation to them, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the same word that we have in Titus 1 verse 7. Has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So though that word is often translated as bishop, it doesn't talk about a separate office. We're not talking about bishops as uh, the um, Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church, or the Roman Catholic Church understands that office. That's a um, different uh, understanding, and an incorrect understanding, of the biblical teaching in this regard. These men are the same as the office of elder. They are elders or overseers in Christ's church. So that first... The second point we want to pay attention to here is that Paul uses the word appoint and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, uh, that's a pretty good translation of the Greek word that's there, appoint. It's a word that you find used uh, in other places of the scripture when a a man, for example, a master of a house appoints a steward over his house. It's used in that kind of context. Um, it's, a, it's a word, therefore, that conveys the idea of uh, giving a position of authority by one who has the right to communicate that authority, to give that authority. 
And the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, appointed elders as those who had the authority from Christ to do so. And now the apostle Paul tells Titus, one of his uh, assistants, that he also has this authority to appoint uh, elders in the churches. And what we understand from this then is that this authority to appoint officers resides in the officers themselves. It resides first in Christ, and Christ gave the authority to the apostles, but the apostles also passed that authority on to uh, those who followed them and who took up the work that they had been doing, the pastors and elders of the church. So that we can even say, in a certain sense, that there is an apostolic succession throughout the churches of the New Testament, not the apostolic succession in the church in the sense that the Roman Catholic Church talks about, but apostolic succession in the sense that the authority that Christ gave to the apostles has, in part, not all the authority of the office of apostle, has, but in part has been communicated from the apostles to faithful men. And these faithful men have then uh, appointed others to follow them in the work. Furthermore, it does seem also from other passages of Scripture that this appointing was not simply a power to, uh, for Titus or for the apostles to pick out certain men and say, we want you to serve in the office, but that this authority was exercised by the apostles and by Titus and Timothy as well, uh, in conjunction with the congregation. And there are a couple of passages in Acts that point us in this direction. Acts 14, verse 23 is one. Acts 14, verse 23, where we uh, read about that appointment of elders in the early churches after the first missionary journey. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. But the word appointed there is not the same word we have in Titus 1. It's a word which uh, suggests that the uh, congregation first chose these men by a show of hands. The the Greek word is a word that means to elect by a show of hands. And so these elders were apparently uh, chosen by the congregations and then Uh, ordained into their office by Paul and Barnabas. That's not a a clear uh, passage, but Acts 6, verse 3 is much clearer in this regard. Acts 6, here we have the record of the uh, choosing of the first deacons to serve the church, the seven deacons who uh, were appointed by the apostles to uh, take over the work of caring for the Uh, poor and the widows, and so on in the church. And we read in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, Peter's talking to the congregation, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There very clearly the the congregation there in Jerusalem had a voice in choosing these men and then the apostles appointed them to their office. And when they had uh, appointed them to their office, we find also that they laid hands on them. That's in verse 6. When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. That's the symbolic way of communicating this authority of office. Now that was the office of deacon, but that would have been the same uh, procedure followed in the office of elder, it seems. The third thing that we want to notice briefly is that Paul says to Titus that he should appoint elders in every city, or various cities around the island of Crete. And those cities had local congregations in them. And Paul wanted Titus to go to each place, to each city, and appoint elders in that city, in that local congregation. So these elders then were appointed for the local congregation. And the fourth thing that we want to notice then is that the apostle uses the plural, appoint elders in every city. And this is again customary throughout the New Testament that when you read about the elders, you read about them in the plural. There was not one ruler in each congregation. There were elders in each congregation. It was a plurality of elders who ruled in each local congregation. And you can look at other passages that talk about this and you can see the same thing in the passage again in Acts 14 that we already looked at. They appointed elders in every city as they were going through the churches but in other places as well. The church is not to be ruled then by one man. Christ is the king, but in each local congregation he has more than one who represents his rule for his flock. But you see then, as we look at these things, how Christ has indeed revealed in the New Testament the nature of the government of his church how he wants his church to be ruled. There are very specific rules. Not one man, not uh, a board of trustees, for example, not a a hierarchy. There's no hierarchy from uh, priest to bishop to cardinal and that sort of thing. None of that appears in the New Testament scriptures. It's a... It's a very simple kind of government. And nevertheless, it's very clearly laid out. And uh, this is what the church should be doing then today, imitating what Christ did for his church from the very beginning of the New Testament period. Now with those things in mind then, let's look at the qualifications for the elder, as we find those qualifications in verses 6 to 9. That list here in Titus falls into two parts. The first part is found in verse 6, and the second part in verses 7 to 9. 
And you can see the division between those parts by the repetition of the word blameless. Notice that in verse 6, if a man is blameless, and then again in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. So that's his basic qualification. He must be blameless. That is, he must be not only one who's morally upright, but he must be one of whom those inside and outside the church can, against whom those inside and outside the church cannot make accusations of immoral behavior, of, uh, of running after women or of uh, being publicly drunk or of uh, behaving in an unseemly fashion, of being tyrannical or, or uh, too dissipated in his way of life or whatever. He must be blameless. But the first area in which he's to be blameless is in his family life. That's what we find in verse 6. The husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation, or insubordination. He's to be the husband of one wife. And I think that we may say basically two things about that. First, polygamy was fairly common in those days, and, but against the law of God. And Paul did not want uh, men who had more than one wife to be appointed to this office. Let them be husbands of one wife. And I think it's implied in that then also that they should be faithful to their wives. But the second thing is that they have faithful children. That is, children who are not accused of dissipation or insubordination. That is, children who are rebellious against their father or against other authorities, or children who live uh, wild and dissipated lives. And Paul does not give us the reason for that here, but in Timothy, he does. 1 Timothy 3 also lays out a list of qualifications for elders. The first verses of that chapter. And in the course of that, he says, verse 4, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So this man has to demonstrate, these elders have to demonstrate their capacity to rule in the church of God by ruling well in their own houses. Not having children who are uh, dissipated, and rebellions against authority. So they demonstrate their blamelessness then, first of all, in their family life. They must be exemplary in their family life. Now the second part of the list then also is headed with that word blameless, but then Paul uh, applies that word blameless to the personal character of the men whom, Timothy, whom Titus should look for. And he gives us a list of characteristics of these men. And if you look at that list, you'll see that 
It begins with five negatives. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And then goes on to six positives. Hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. And then a final qualification which will set apart and treat by itself, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. So we have first those negatives. Let's look at each of those very briefly. First of all, then, we have this not self-willed. What he means here, of course, is someone who's not always uh, insistent upon doing what he wants to do. But one who is instead willing to receive advice, one who is willing to submit to authority, the authority of the elders of the church, the authority of the magistrates, and any other authority which may exist in his life. If he's self-willed, that is, he always insists on his own way and doing his own thing, He's not fit to be an elder, and he's not fit to be an elder because, of course, the individual elders also are under the authority of Christ and under the authority of the body of elders in the church. So if you have four elders in the church, each individual elder is answerable to all the other elders for his conduct of his office. He has to show himself, therefore, as one who is willing to accept the authorities that exist, not self-willed, not quick-tempered or prone to anger or irascible, one who's, who's quick to take umbrage or to fly off the handle. An elder has to exhibit the uh, character of the Lord Jesus Christ who is patient and kind with his wayward and weak sheep. And if he's always flying off the handle and losing his temper, that shows a spirit of pride and it shows a lack of compassion for the flock of God. He must be not given to wine, that is, not a drunkard. And this is partly because, of course, uh, drunkenness is a public disgrace but also partly, as Proverbs 31 teaches us, because drunkenness clouds the understanding. Proverbs 31, uh, King Lemuel's mother is teaching him, and she says to him, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, we could substitute there, it's not for elders or any rulers, in whatever position of authority they may be. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So not given to wine. Fourthly, not violent. It is not contentious kinds of persons. Now, elders are called to contend sometimes sometimes with other people. And Paul makes that very clear here, actually, when he goes on in verses 10 and following to talk about some of those with whom these elders are going to have to contend. 
the insubordinate, the idle talkers and deceivers and so on, those of the circumcision who are contradicting sound doctrine. They have to contend with them. But they're not to be contentious by character, pugnacious or quarrelsome. Again, this can very readily lead to great trouble in the church if you have a, a pugnacious, contentious and quarrelsome man in, the, in a position of authority. He may cause a lot of grief and, and trouble in the church. And finally, in this first part of the list, not greedy for money. There are men who see positions of authority as opportunities to enrich themselves. You don't want that kind of man serving in office and especially serving in the office of elder in Christ's church. He will serve himself then in the office and he will not feed the flock of God. Then we have the the, uh, positives in the uh, next part of the list. And notice at the top of that um, appears hospitable. He must be hospitable. The, the Greek here really means friendly to strangers. But hospitable in the more general sense that we use it today as well. That is a man who's, who's willing to take into his home and to receive into his fellowship all kinds of different people. People of, of different social class, of different levels of wealth, of different colors and races, of different ages, of different kinds of appearance, whether the appearance be uh, uh, pleasing or disgusting to him, one who receives others and who receives them with friendship, and who receives them with a willingness to help in whatever ways is necessary ways are necessary. Secondly, he must be a lover of what is good. That doesn't mean a lover of luxury. It means a lover of moral good. Not one who's just blameless, upright in his external conduct, but one who shows by his conduct that he loves good. He loves what is right what is pleasing to God. And he shows that, of course, by pursuing it in his own life and by showing a desire that others with whom he comes in contact display that same love of good themselves. Thirdly, he must be sober-minded. We talked about this word last week, so we can be very brief about it. Sanity, but spiritual sanity, a mind that's not corrupted by false doctrine and by fancies and by uh, fantasies and by um, willful uh, uh, desire to think his own way and to invent his own kinds of ideas and to be teaching his own things, but a man whose whose mind is subject to the truth of God's word. Just means righteous, righteous, one who, in his external behavior, uh, observes the law of God. Holy, one who is conformed in his nature to the law of God. If just has to do particularly with behavior, holiness has to do with his 
his nature. His, his mind must be holy, filled with holy thoughts. His will must be holy, not corrupted and turned to evil desires. And he will display this, this holiness in his righteous behavior. And finally, self-controlled. That is, able to govern his external behavior, not one who can be readily and easily provoked into uh, acting uh, rashly. One who's able to govern his behavior, who's able to govern his tongue, and not become intemperate in anything. One of the scriptural virtues that all of us are supposed to pursue is moderation. And moderation comes through self-control. We all have areas of life in which we tend to be intemperate or immoderate. We must seek the self-control that enables us to govern ourselves in those things. Now when you take those qualifications together, I think what you see here is the description of what Paul means by a blameless man. I think that's the real point here in this list of qualifications. And he's, he's not laying out a formal list of qualifications, but he's really describing the blameless character, the exemplary character that uh, the those who appoint to the office of elder must seek in those whom they appoint. If you go to 1 Timothy 3, you'll see in 1 Timothy 3 a list that's the same in some respects, but has some things there that are not here, and this list has some things that aren't in 1 Timothy 3. So these aren't formal lists of qualifications like you might draw up for a job opening that you have in your company, for example. But they're descriptions of the spiritual character. The spiritual character is to be blameless. Not one against whom accusations of uh, a disgraceful character can readily be brought. And then... The final qualification has to do with his knowledge of the faith. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Sound in doctrine, therefore. And he has to be sound in doctrine because he will need to exhort and convict those who contradict. And he will need also to be teaching the sheep. So that's uh, basically the passage here. What I want to do just very briefly now as we come to the end of this is to expand a little bit on the idea of what the elders are to be doing. And there are several places where we can go in the New Testament to look at the kinds of work that's, that our Lord expects of the elders. First of all, some general passages. One of the places we can turn to is, is John chapter 21 verses 15 and following, where Jesus is restoring Peter to the office of apostle. Peter had denied him and therefore had denied his office as well. 
And Jesus publicly restored him to show to the rest of the apostles that Peter was to be received again among them and on an equal footing with them as one of the apostles. And he asks Peter, do you love me? That's the basic qualification he seeks in his apostles and in his officers too, that they must love him and demonstrate their love for him by their blamelessness. But in restoring Peter, he he gives him three times an exhortation. In verse 15, the end of the verse, feed my lambs. In verse 16, at the end of the verse again, tend my sheep. And then again in verse 17, the end, feed my sheep. Now you notice there in the New King James Version that there are two different words used, feed and tend. And actually, I kind of wish that the translation had flipped those words around and used tend in the first and third instances and feed in the second instance. The first word and the third word is a word that which really means to shepherd. And we'll see this word again as Paul is instructing the word, the elders in Ephesus, for example, he uses this same word, shepherd my sheep, he says to uh, Peter, and shepherd my lambs. And there's implied in that word shepherd, of course, all the, the care that a shepherd shows for his flock. He leads them to green pastures and quiet waters. He protects them from predators. He brings back the the ones who stray. He tends the the sick and the weak among them. He carries the young lambs in his arms. That beautiful picture we have of our Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter uh, 40. This all this care that the shepherd shows for his flock, the elders of the church are to show for the flock of God. Protecting them, guarding them against those who uh, seek to hurt them, feeding them with the, the bread and water of life, bringing back those who stray into sin, caring for the weak and the afflicted, among them, and doing it all with love. Love for Christ first, but love also for the sheep. But the second word that he uses is a word that means especially feed. And by the way, I'm depending here on Trench's synonyms of the New Testament for the distinction between those two words. The first word conveys all that the shepherd does for his flock. This second word conveys more the idea of feeding. That is feeding with the bread and water of life, feeding with the uh, word of God. That's the primary responsibility of the elders. Then we can also go to Acts chapter 20 again, and to Paul's instructions to... (coughs) the elders of the church in Ephesus. There, um, especially verses 28 and 31. 
Therefore, he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. There's the first thing he says, take heed. And I think what he means is watch over the flock. As a shepherd watches over his sheep, you must be watching over the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. There's that word shepherd, which we saw in John 21 as well to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For, notice this, I know know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, so he's talking about those who persecute the church there, the savage wolves who will not spare the flock. But then he goes on to a second group of men who are dangerous to the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. Now he's saying, watch for these these false teachers and these savage wolves to protect the flock against them. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. But Paul sets himself up also as an example in verse 27 for these elders. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, as well as in verse 31. I did not cease to warn everyone night and days, night and day with tears. So you have the taking heed, the shepherding, and the watching, as well as the training or teaching in the whole counsel of God. 1 Peter 5 is a third passage that talks about the work of the elders. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter begins that chapter, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. There again you have that word shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That word is peculiarly suited to the care which the rulers of Christ's church must show for his church. Shepherd the flock of God. Serving as overseers not by compulsion. Notice the additional descriptions here. Serving as overseers, you have the word bishops again there, or overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly. That is, don't be the kind of person who has to be forced to and continually admonished to do the work to which he's been compelled, to which he's been called. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. That is, don't be greedy for money, but ready to serve even at personal loss. And thirdly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Don't be tyrannical to the flock, but instead lead by your own example. Doesn't mean... Uh, don't exercise your authority. Just serve. Just set yourself forth as an example and do nothing else. No, you must serve as overseers, but 
Make sure that while you are doing it, you are being an example to the flock of how Christ wants his people to live. Now a couple of more specific passages as well. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 where the Apostle is instructing Timothy in the office of elder. And he says this, Let the elders who rule well, there's part of their work, ruling, be counted worthy of double honor. And the double honor is obedience as well as pay for their work. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So they rule and they labor in the word and doctrine. And then in James 5, verse 14, just one more passage. James 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is some of what the New Testament shows us elders should be doing. And basically, I think we may say it's the use of the keys of the kingdom, which Christ committed to his apostles and to the authorities in his church. The preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the exercise of Christian discipline, that is, admonishing and excommunicating, if necessary, those who are rebellious against Christ. When you consider this New Testament material, which I've just touched on very briefly, I think you see that the New Testament is very clear about what the government of the church should look like, who the officers should be, what should be their work, what the name of the office should be, elder or overseer. The New Testament gives us considerable detail when you start to bring all this uh, material together. Let's close on this note then tonight, and that is that all of us have a calling to live in submission to these elders. Hebrews 13, verses uh, 7 and 17 are very clear about this relation which we must bear to them. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. So remember them. Remember them in prayer. Remember that they have a position of authority from Christ. Remember them with kindness. Remember them with gratitude to God for giving them to you. Whose faith follow, that is, imitate, their godly, blameless conduct, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then in verse 17, again, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That is, don't be fractious and uh, unwilling to listen and refusing to receive their authority. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. May God bless us with his word.